Welcome back to the Future Law Podcast. We took a short break for the holidays, but of course, we're here again, and we've got some great episodes ahead. For longtime listeners and new folks alike, a reminder, this show looks at where the law has been and where it's going. I'm Mike Madison. I'm a law professor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with 35 years in the legal sector. This season, we focused mostly on ALSPs, the sector of the legal industry called Alternative Legal Services Providers, eyeing critical things happening in the here and now of legal. And from time to time, we take a step back with an episode about a big picture topic, looking at questions and changes to legal systems in total, even in society. That's today's show. I chat with Eric Holder, who served as Attorney General of the United States from 2009 to 2015 under President Barack Obama. We focus on a terrific book that he published during 2022 titled Our Unfinished March. It's both a history of voting rights and democracy in the U.S., and a call to action, outlining numerous concrete ways to advance and protect voting and democratic systems of government. It's a manifesto and a deeply personal account. Take a listen. Eric Holder, thank you for joining me on the Future Law Podcast. Well, it's good to be here, Mike, and thanks for having me. So you published a book, middle of 2022, called Our Unfinished March. And I wanted to start us off by inviting you to talk briefly about the book and especially talk about the, the key takeaways. This is a book about the future of democracy. Right. It's a book about American democracy and the thing that I think uh, most defines American democracy, and that is the right to vote. It examines the history of the fight for the right to vote in, in, in part one. Part two looks at where we are now as a nation with regard to the ongoing fight to uh, have people have access to the polls. And then the third part really deals with some specific proposals that I make about the American system, changes that we can make, structural changes that we can make to ensure that we live up to our founding ideals and so that people will have access to the polls and so that the people will actually be the ones who decide uh, the direction of the nation, as opposed to uh, the privileged few, as opposed to an entrenched status quo. Can you walk through just very, very quickly the high points of the proposals? You've covered a lot of ground in the book, uh, hitting pretty much every, every branch of government. Yeah, I look at all of the branches of government. I mean, I look at the legislative branch and say, for instance, that we have to end in the United States House of Representatives, the, the process called gerrymandering uh, in our Senate. I say we need to end the filibuster uh, with regard to the Supreme Court, our court system. I think we need to expand the court. Uh, we need to restrict terms of Supreme Court justices to, to 18 years. I think, and then maybe creatively, I think we need to have presidents appoint a, a new justice in the first and third year of his or her term so that we get more churn on the court and people don't serve for 30 and 40 years. With regard to the presidency, I think we need to come up with a way in which we work around our electoral college. And then with regard to voting, you know, automatic registration, same day registration, make election day a national holiday and end felon disenfranchisement. 14 days of, of early voting, you know, a greater reliance on mail-in ballots. And so there's a variety of, of things there. The list is relatively extensive and people will say, well, you know, you're trying to bite off too much. Is this realistic? And the first part of the book, the history, I think is a really good demonstration of the fact that other generations of Americans have faced challenges that seemed daunting, that seemed unreachable, and yet they got through them. They, they, they saved our democracy. They protected our democracy. And I think that through the things that I'm proposing, as daunting as they might seem, we have the capacity within us, if all of us will get involved, to bring about the, the, the kinds of changes that I, I talk about. So that was my reaction to the book. 
It's a big menu. There's a history that shows that change is possible, but it prompted me to reflect, where do we start? What, so if I'm, you know, I'm, maybe I'm an experienced lawyer, maybe I'm a public policy advocate, maybe I'm a, a young activist, uh, I'm fresh out of law school. Is this a, a case where we start with the easier challenges, for, relatively speaking, or we tackle the big things right away? Do we try to assault the entirety of the challenge across the board? Talk us through a little bit of the strategies or tactics that you have in mind. Well, I tell you, you know, if you ask the question, where do we start? The start is to get people motivated, to get the American people focused um, on these democracy issues. We just finished our, our, our midterms, midterm elections. And one of the things I've been saying for the past 12, 18 months prior to the midterms was that democracy was on the ballot and that the American people needed to focus on the protection of our democracy. You know, an example that I, I always use is that, you know, fascism rose in Europe in the 20th century, not because fascism was strong, but because the defense of democracy was weak. And so we needed to, we need to galvanize the American people to focus on these issues. If you get a, a focused American people, a galvanized American people looking at these issues, all things then become possible. Then you're talking about tactics, but you have to lay um, the, the foundation. We had before our Congress just last year, a, a revision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Had that passed, had we done away with the filibuster in the Senate, a lot of the things that I've talked about here in my list of proposals would have been, would have been dealt with in one single piece of legislation. Not everything, but a substantial number of those would have been dealt with in that, in that single piece of legislation. And so, Get the American people focused, try to get support for that kind of legislation, get the American people to pressure their elected representatives to focus on that kind of legislation. And I think all things then become uh, become possible. How would you galvanize people? So one of the things that we all know is that in the era of social media, in the era of misinformation and disinformation and, and related problems and the demise of what we all tended to take for granted during the 20th century, which is the daily newspaper, that in essentially every city of size in the U.S., there were often not only one, but two or maybe even more daily papers that essentially everybody pointed to and relied on for that basic sense of what was going on in the world. And the established incumbent print media, social media, ecology, everything has gotten so disrupted and turned upside down and difficult to rely on. So how would you go about energizing people on a broad scale to say that this is a problem that deserves everybody's attention? Well, I think the, the thing to get people interested is to make them understand that some of these things would seem a little arcane, a little, you know, a little wonky, are, are things that impact their day-to-day -day lives. When I talk about gerrymandering, you know, I mean, we started a thing that I'm the head of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee back in January of 2017. I'd come up and start talking about gerrymandering, and I could see people in the audience, their eyes would glaze over. But when I tell them, explain to them, if you care about a woman's right to choose, if you care about the protection of voting rights, if you care about climate, if you care about criminal justice reform, all of these things are impacted by who serves in our state legislature, who serves in our United States House of Representatives. And that is determined by or can be subverted by this process that we call partisan and racial gerrymandering here in the United States. And then people kind of look up and say, well, wait a minute. So I care about a woman's right to choose. I therefore should care about gerrymandering. Yeah. Answer that. Yes. And when people make that connection, 
then they become interested. And so the question then is, well, how do you reach people to get them involved, to make them aware of the fact that focusing on these structural proposals, these structural changes that I have proposed is going to matter to them. And we've got great capacities with social media to reach people in ways that we never did before. You're absolutely right. The people used to look at two, three newspapers. I'm from New York. Maybe we had four or five. But the reality now is it's a question of trying to identify where people are and how you get to them. And we are a very segmented population. If you want to reach young people, there's a whole bunch of different social media that you go to as opposed to reaching people like me, you know, baby, baby boomers. But we're all engaged in social media in some form or fashion. Sometimes it's just a question of, you know, using social media to read the newspapers. I mean, in, you know, in the old days, you'd have a piece of paper in front of you. Nowadays, I, you know, I, I'm an avid reader of the Washington Post and the New York Times. I can't remember the last time I actually held a piece of paper related to those those two great newspapers in my hands. I'm always looking at it on my phone. And so using social media to reach people, to get that message to them, structural change impacts your life, especially young people. You know, they are the largest voting bloc now in, in the United States, but they don't have as much power as they should have because they don't vote in the same proportions as my generation, baby boomers. We have disproportionate amounts of power because we vote in really substantial, really substantial numbers. So getting young people to understand that if they participate in this process, it will have an impact on their lives and reaching them through the social media that they're all acquainted with and use on a daily basis. That's the uh, that's the task. What I'm hearing makes me think TikTok, right? What, you know, what do young people actually pay attention to? Where do they get news and information about the world? You know, TikTok is this huge present in their lives in a way that probably not present in yours or mine. But what that does tell me is that personalizing these challenges, really making it resonate in individual lives really makes a big difference. And that prompts me to, to ask you about the first part of the book, because something that I really wasn't aware of, but you're very, very eloquent about, is your own personal history and narrative. It's not only your service as attorney general, but you have a long, long personal history, family history, commitment, connection to voting rights and civil rights and the fate of democratic systems. And I wondered if you would just chat just a little bit about your journey and your pathway into advocacy that you're engaged with right now. Sure. I mean, you have to look back. I come of age at a time when, you know, John Kennedy uh, challenged us to be involved in civic life. I'm an African-American man who has uh, who, coming of age in, in the 60s sees the, the expansion of voting rights as a result of our, our, our civil rights movement. I, I see images, you know, in the media of, of my day through a black and white television in the, the basement of my house in Queens, New York, to see John Lewis go across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965 and get clubbed because he was trying to expand voting rights for black folks in the South, in Alabama. My sister-in-law was uh, the late Vivian Malone, who integrated the University of Alabama in 1963, is the first black graduate of the University of Alabama. So all of these things, um, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s when things are churning. I see things on, on television. I get to know people who were involved in the struggle. 
And that left in me this notion of service from President Kennedy. I observed this struggle for, for greater participation by people of color in the United States. And that really shaped me. I mean, the 60s was a great time to grow up. All things seemed possible if we simply got involved, you know, stopping the war you know, fighting for, you know, women's rights, fighting for, for gay rights. These were all the things that we were, we were engaged in in the 60s. And that is the foundation for my um, professional life. All of the things that I, that infused me as a, as a very young man are, are things that I have carried with me. I actually think that, you know, in some ways I'm more progressive. You're supposed to get more conservative as you get older. <laughs> and I actually think that uh, I'm more progressive now than I might have been when I was in my in my twenties, having experienced uh, more, having seen you know more discrimination, having experienced more in in that way. I'm still that kid from the '60s, laid on top of that with some experience, and that makes me think that um, you know I've got to be as progressive and as involved as uh, as I possibly can be. So let me pivot at this point because we have a number of listeners to the podcast who uh, live and work in countries outside the U.S., in Europe, in the U.K., in Canada, Asia, Africa, uh, and really we've got a very broad and diverse range of, of participants in this podcast. And so far, you in the book, we've been talking mostly about the U.S. and the U.S. experience. And I wondered if you could reflect a little bit on how the themes that you're invested in, how the proposals that you've articulated in the book, how those might translate to and and you'd you'd like people outside the U.S. to to hear and maybe participate in in what you're talking about. You know, I, I think these themes are in some ways universal, and that is if you get a if you get the citizens of a particular country, certainly it is, it's demonstrated in our history in the United States. If you get people concerned focused, again, that word I've used before, galvanized, you know, all things are, are, are possible. We tend to underestimate the power that we have as so-called ordinary citizens. You know, I've had a lot of titles in my life. I've been U.S. attorney, I've been a judge, deputy attorney general, attorney general, but the most powerful one that I have is the one that I have now, citizen of the United States of America. And that's true for people in other countries as well. Our world history demonstrates that to us. You know, we've seen people revolution, people's revolutions around um, the globe that have changed systems, that have moved what seem to be implacable governments. Um, And and so I I think that if people will focus on the issues, focus on the structural changes that need to be made, if they will, you know, gather together and organize all things, as I said, become possible. I mean, I've seen this you know, in my lifetime, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Asia, South America, you know, I have seen changes, the likes of which people would have thought impossible. I mean, I've seen communism fall. Uh, I've seen dictators removed. Again, people who you thought were going to be, or systems that you thought were going to be in place forever, and were not, because people, 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 got together and decided that they wanted to bring about necessary change. That is possible. Let me add on to that with an additional layer of complexity. Right now, something we've talked about on our podcast quite a lot is the growing influence and role of technology, AI, other kinds of information technology at large scale, super fast, super sophisticated in all aspects of politics, law, social systems of other sorts. That is, in many respects, 
the sources of resistance to the kind of citizen advocacy that you're talking about are not only human beings, they're computer technologies, right? AIs making judgments, making decisions about ordinary day-to-day life kinds of things, court systems building AIs uh, and and machine learning-based systems into sentencing decisions, for example, loan underwriting for business loans and and real estate lending. There's a lot of the transformation of systems in daily life. And from the standpoint of the, the citizen and sort of citizen power that you're emphasizing, it's difficult to know when those things are happening. It's difficult to know how they're operating, who's in charge, who's making the decisions to deploy these things, where they're accountable. How do you organize citizen engagement in a world where technology layers are so robust, so thick, and often so non-transparent? Yeah. I mean, you know, technology is both of great assistance to this citizen movement that I think can be had, but it's also a potential obstacle that has to be overcome. You know, if we give too much to the technological capacities that we have, um, we can have technology make decisions that only can be made by human beings. You know, you talk about, for instance, you know, loan determinations. Uh, if you simply, you know, go to a computer and punch in some numbers with regard to a, a loan applicant, you may get a result dictated by um, technology that's inconsistent with what a human loan officer might determine is a good risk in, in, in a person. And so that human component has to always be a part of this. And we need to understand that we should never turn our backs on technology, but we also need to make sure that we, we harness our technology and always remember that it should be in service to us, not a substitute for us. Technology allows us the ability to touch um, and reach people in ways that we never have before. But technology also gives uh, people who are in organizations that are purveyors of disinformation the same ability to reach people. And so we as individuals have got to steal ourselves for um, you know, this technology that we have to confront, the disinformation that we have to deal with. It means that we've got to be maybe even more vigilant than people were 50 years ago, more discerning than people were 50 years or so ago. Again, you know, great possibilities, but also great challenges that are presented to us by, um, by technology. Let me talk about legal education and students training to become lawyers right now, not only in the U.S., in U.S. law schools, but in law programs and law faculties all over the world, where I know because of people that we've talked to on the podcast and from my own experience that there's an enormous amount of anxiety among the next generation or the next couple of generations of people who are coming into law, anxiety about careers, the sorts of things that have been familiar for a long time, but also anxiety about the role of the rule of law, the stability of the rule of law, not just the future of democracy, but all the additional things that are wrapped up in the idea of democracy. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit to how you advise people coming through training today organize their own priorities in terms of skills, competencies, interests, uh, how they allocate their time? What are the best ways for these folks to engage with all of these transformations that we're talking about? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's difficult. I mean, I am the father of a a second year law student. I've experienced um, through her uh, and and heard about these, these anxieties. And what I think, you know, those kids who are in these kids, young people who are in, in, in law school today, need to be thinking about is the same thing that I asked myself 40 years or so ago. 
how am I going to serve? How am I going to use my legal education to serve? If you, ha- if you use that frame, that will help you decide or help you determine even course selection. You know, um, what courses do you want to sign up for but beyond just, you know, the, the basic stuff? And also think that, you know, wherever you are, if you're working in a, in a big law firm, if you're working in a, a big corporation, if you're a solo practitioner, you can always be a public interest lawyer wherever you are. If you're focused on understanding that lawyers have, have been, you know, there are lots of lawyer jokes, you know, and that, that's fine. But the reality is that lawyers have been at the forefront of all the positive change that we have certainly seen here in the United States. And my guess would be that's probably true in other nations around the world as well. We have special privileges that we have as lawyers. But with those privileges and with that power comes responsibility. And we have, I think, the obligation to make sure that we use that power that we have for positive change. Again, uh, it doesn't mean that you have to choose to only work in, you know, in, in the public interest sphere. I mean, to be a public defender, to work at an NGO. No, you can still, you can work in places that are going to, you know, give you sufficient amounts of money to live in a way that you want. But at the same time, uh, you still have that capacity to do things that are going to be you know, societal, societally changing. And, and so that's what I would, I would urge young people. You know, every generation is faced with a unique set of challenges, and this generation perhaps more um, than others. But they have within themselves the ability to meet those challenges, and I think they should never lose that confidence. I see a great deal of anxiety. It's really striking to me. Great deals of anxiety in this this generation. And I, you know, they, they they've seen an awful lot. They're dealing, you know, most recently with this with this pandemic and what that has what that has meant to them. But every generation. I mean, you think back to the greatest generation. I mean, they dealt with you know depression, the the, the depression, not depression, but the depression, World War Two, and yet you know they they endured. And so I think they should find some solace in that. You know, looking back, if you're, if you're aware of history and aware of the fact that challenges have been posed, challenges have been met, and that you are just as capable as prior generations, but committing yourself, and this is what I always try to urge young people, committing yourself to that positive change is extremely important. You know, Dr. King, Martin Luther King said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But here's the deal. It doesn't bend on its own. It only bends when people like those folks in law school today put the hands on that arc and pull it towards justice. And so that's what I think every one of these these unbelievably bright and capable young law students needs to ask themselves. What am I going to do? How am I going to put my hands on that arc and pull it towards uh, towards justice? They, They can do it. They can certainly do it. I love that theme. And I love it in part because centralizing all of your advice around the idea of service is both very compelling it is traditional in terms of the history of law and the legal profession, but it also gives people a guide going forward in a very broad way, right? You've articulated service as a very, very broad unifying value. And I think that's what's really important about your message. Yeah. I mean, you know, people, you can think about change. We've talked about a lot of political change here, but the reality is that, um, as a lawyer, you have the capacity to bring about change in a whole range of spheres. It can be, yeah, it can be looking at the electoral system in the United States or in your, in your country, but you can also be thinking about broad, broader things, more societally broad changes. What, what's happening with, with young people? 
in the United States? What legally can you do to make sure that every American child has all of the benefits that every American child should have? You don't have to be involved in you know, partisan politics in using your legal skills. It, it, it can be, as I said, helping young people, dealing with economic disparities, a whole rate housing, reforming the criminal justice system. There are a whole bunch of ways in which lawyers uniquely have the ability to bring about that change. And as I said, unique abilities and I think unique responsibilities. It's a call to service uh, across the spectrum of, of law, politics, and society from macro to the micro community level. And I really, really appreciate that. Eric Holder, we have to call it uh, to an end for today. I want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast and sharing your thoughts about your book, Our Unfinished March, your career, and additional insights for law lawyers and society going forward. So again, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. In our next episode, we rotate back to technology and legal services as Dan Hunter chats with Isabel Parker on the topic of digital transformation in legal organizations. If you would like to share your thoughts on the future of law, ALSPs, or anything else, then send us an email at futurelawpodcast at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at The Future Law Pod. If you're enjoying our show, please review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you to our executive producer and editor, Paria Tahirzadeh. Bye for now.